You're listening to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast. For more information, check out our website at www.shorelinecc.com. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to pull them out or turn them on and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 as we focus on verses 14 through 15. Hebrews chapter 12, focusing on verses 14 uh, through 15. If you've been with us and you haven't noticed, we are in a series called what? Game Plan. Game Plan series, okay? And if you're with us in the first week, the first week we talked about the coach and about how important it is to have the right coach and how the coach feels about us. This is, of course, is God. Then week two, we talked about the play. And this was about hearing God. And it answered the question, does God speak to us? And the answer to that is, yes, he does. So how do I hear God? How do I walk in that? And then last week, week three, as we hit the halftime mark, we talked about the position. And there we talked about what is the will of God for my life? How do I discover it? How do I walk with God? And how does that interact with all the players around me? Three very key things. Now, today we're coming to a part that, just in all honesty, as I planned this out and looked at this and realized this was something that the Lord wanted us to talk about today, it was a message that I wasn't really excited about. Have you ever had to kind of talk about something and you're like, I'm not really excited about this? Am I the only bad person here today? Our topic today is team conflict. Yay! <laughs> team conflict, because conflict is something that it's a part of life. How many of you have ever experienced conflict? Do you, do, do you see my nose? I had conflict with the mountain we talked about earlier, okay? So it's, conflict is part of life, and especially when you walk in a team and you operate in a team, uh, conflict is something that you're going to face. And if you haven't faced it yet... You can run, but you can't hide. Nowhere to run, right? You, you, you can't get away from conflict. It's going to come at your door if you haven't faced it. It's something that we need to deal with. But I'm here to tell you today that as I dove into this, I was surprised that I actually enjoyed this study and surprising because I don't like conflict. How many of you are like me? You're like, I, I don't like conflict. That's not a part of what I enjoy. I've often had to deal with it. If you have kids, you're going to deal with it. If you have friends, you're going to deal with it. If you work, you're going to have to deal with it. And I don't shy away from it, but it's not something that I enjoy. It's like something that you have to deal with to get healthy. And I think especially for us now, we're in what many have called an age of conflict. Just to state the obvious, when you look at our society, at least in my lifetime, I struggle to think of another time when we've been more divided, when we've been more in conflict as a culture. Politically, we are divided. The fights are vicious and rampant. No matter who you vote for or what side you're on, the division is immense. Even relationally as a culture, divorce and isolation are at an all-time high. And so much so that even the, the generations that are coming up behind us, there's this fear of commitment to relationship because there's such a lack of hope that they see out there. Relationships breaking down. Struggles, difficulties. And even within the church, within the body of Christ, there's often so much division among us, right? It, years ago, I remember as a kid, if someone said that they were a Christian, it didn't really take a lot of definition or a lot of analysis or a lot of conversation for people to know what that meant. 
But when you walk downtown Seattle today, or you're working the coffee houses, or you're just talking to people, and it becomes known that you are a Christian, the question that's either spoken or thought is, well, what kind of Christian are you? Are you one of those angry Christians that pickets outside? I was in the coffee house, and there was an angry picketer out there, and I was like, no, don't do that. Or are you one of these gentle Christians on the other side where everything's good, it's all good, it's all good, it's all just grace, and nothing really matters? Are you a conservative Christian? Are you a liberal Christian? Are you a Christian that believes in going to church or a Christian that believes you shouldn't go to church? What does that mean? What does a Christian mean? And so much to where even so many people, as they've tried to reach their friends, they've even taken that word Christian because it's been so, so used and abused and mis, uh, misinformed that they've even thrown that out and said, I'm just a Jesus follower. I'm following Jesus. Have you ever been there and been like, man, I'm just, words are so difficult anymore because we're so divided and so watered down. But unfortunately, as the body of Christ, this has all moved us to a point of retreating. You know, one of the books that I've been reading in preparation for this that I highly recommend, if you're struggling with, how do I engage in a culture that's so divided and so outraged? Ed Stetzer has written this book called Christians in the Age of Outrage. And as we look at this division and look at everything going on, here's what Ed Stetzer answers. He answers the question of why are we so divided? He says, one of the major causes, I believe, for this age of outrage is that religious and cultural consensus has evaporated. One of the reasons, religious and cultural consensus, unity, it has evaporated. And we see this when we look on social media, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, we see just these these worlds that are just raging. Now, I, I love social media. I'm on there. You can see a picture of me skiing on Friday if you go on there. It has some wonderful things. I connect with family on there that are spread all over the world. It's a wonderful tool. But on the darker side of social media, it's become this place of of hit and run. It's given us the ability where we can reach out from great distances and inflict great pain on somebody that we don't even know and we don't even have to stay around to continue the conversation or to be a part of the consequence of the pain that we've inflicted, right? And we know this. So guilty of hit and run, and and at times, even the body of Christ, those who claim to know Christ become guilty of this. See, we're in a culture that is more obsessed with being first to have an opinion rather than being careful to have the right opinion, amen? See, an informed and carefully thought out opinion. We're so obsessed with doing something that we often forget to act in the way that God's called us to act. How's God called us to act? He's called us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Think about that. God has called us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. But unfortunately, as a result of all of this, through their findings and through their research, Ed Stetzer has found that the majority of Christians, they've actually shrunk back, either out of fear or shame at the way some Christians engage poorly with their opponents. These believers have adopted silence and retreat as their default state. Out of fear. I don't want to be associated with that. That's not what it means to follow Christ. We want to say something, but we don't want to jump in and be associated with that. Have you ever been there? Every day for me, I see things happening. I'm like, God, 
How do I engage? What does this mean? Because has God called us to engage with culture? Yes, God's called us to engage. So today, my goal in laying this out and having this family conversation about team conflict with us is that this would encourage you and it would show us how to walk and how to be Christ alive to so many people around us. How do we engage with this? How do we walk in this? As we look at how do we love our neighbor, how do we step out, I think we have to look at the life of Christ. That's a good idea, isn't it? To look at the life of Christ and say, Jesus, how did you walk? Because Jesus was walking at a time that was filled with conflict as well. When you look at the, the, the period in history that he stepped into, massive conflict. But when they asked theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard, how would you describe Jesus? How would you describe how Jesus walked? Is it theologian? Is it master? Is it king? Know what word Dallas Willard used? Relaxed. He said, when I study the life of Jesus, the word I think of is relaxed. That's peace, isn't it? So as we walk through this and as we begin this conversation about how we walk through team conflict, I'd like for you to just take a moment and just invite the peace that comes through Christ just to breathe in and say, Lord, speak, your servants are listening. In a life and in a culture where there's so much heartache, so much division, so much separation, we need your peace that passes all understanding to flood our hearts and our minds to renew us so that we can walk justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our Lord. And we give you thanks now. We receive it from you. And everyone said together, amen, amen, amen. So let's dive into our text today. Hebrews 12, verses 14, starts off by saying, work at living in peace with everyone. And work at living a holy life, for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Corrupting many. See, as followers of Christ, as Christians, as we walk, being a Christian doesn't mean you're going to walk through different things. You're going to walk through trials. But following Jesus, it affects how you walk. So it's not that you walk into conflict, but it affects how you walk. And the first thing that we see as we lay this out is we see peace. Everyone say peace. Isn't that just cool to say and comforting? It's peace. The first thing that the writer of Hebrews is telling, trying to tell us and what God is telling us today is that we need peace in our life. Who wants some peace in your life? We need peace. We need peace. So as we look at it, what is peace? Peace appears in the Bible over 400 times. When you look at the Bible from the beginning to the end, you see this thread of peace about how we need it. In the Old Testament, the word for peace was the word shalom. Shalom. And what that means when you look in, into the definition is it means a total well-being, prosperity, and security associated with God's presence among his people. And it's linked in the Old Testament with the covenant. The presence of peace as God's gift was conditional on Israel's o- obedience. So it's this gift from God, this comfort that comes through a covenant relationship as we obey God. That's the Old Testament. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we have this Greek word, irene. Everyone say, irene. 
Okay. In the news, <laughs> this, was long, this was the long for peace and is understood as having come in Christ and able to be experienced by faith through Christ. So in other words, we now get that peace of God through Jesus. The prophecies of the Old Testament, it prophesied about this prince of peace that would come, who is in Jesus. So the peace of God in the Old Testament, we now attain through Jesus Christ who came and lived and died for us and rose again so that we can have new life in him. This is the peace that is afforded to us. But in this section of Hebrews, it says that peace takes work. How many realize that anything worth anything takes a lot of work, right? Whether you're tiling your basement or whatever it is, it takes work. It takes a lot of work to get through it. And sometimes we kind of oversee that. But even this word work, when you look at what that word work meant, what they were trying to communicate is they compared it like a race. It's like you're pursuing it like an athlete who was running in a race to reach this goal. So knowing now kind of what peace is, why do we need it? We need it because conflict is normal. Conflict is normal, and we know that, but sometimes we're like, hey, I gave my life to Christ. I shouldn't have any conflict anymore. It should be all good. Jesus, he breaks bread. He gives me fish. He walks on water. How can things be bad? But here's what, the, here's what it says in 1 Peter. It says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange was happening to you. Don't be surprised. And Jesus, he even warned his disciples of conflict. He said this. This is what Jesus said to his disciples, okay? He said, the world will hate you because they hated me. How's that for a recruitment tactic? Okay? He's saying, guys, look, they hate me. They're going to hate you if you're acting like me. This is part of it. He also said, he said, you will be kicked out of the synagogue. And he even went on to say, the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. This is because they've never known the Father or me. He's saying conflict is normal. You're going to hit it. You're you're, you're going to come across it. Don't be surprised. But he's also saying that as you hit this conflict, peace is essential. And here's why peace is so essential. It's so important because peace is what protects you. Peace is your protector. Jesus said in the same passage in John 16, he said, I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. I've told you all this so you would have peace. Because here's what he went on to say. He said, here on earth you will have many trials and many sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. See, peace, it brings unity into our lives. What Jesus is saying that even though there's stuff going on, when there's peace in your life, there's unity because when you're at peace, you're able to think better logically, aren't you? Like we talked about earlier with this CARE conference, when you can get ahead of it and plan for it and not be able not having to make all these decisions under duress, we're better prepared for it. Because when we're at peace, when the pressure is off of us, we can think logically, we can think through things better, we can hear God in that. We're not as distracted when peace guards us. We're able to hear each other in that. Because see, peace is our shield and our defender. This is what we see in Scripture. Peace is continually compared to a shield. In Philippians 4, it says that we're to guard that your hearts and our minds with peace. Peace. Peace is what guards us. It is the shield in front of us. And what's the first thing that gets hit when you're in a battle? It's your shield. 
When you're in battle and something is raging around you, you pick up your shield. That's the first thing that gets hit. And your protection is only as good as that shield in front of you. Think about that. And throughout Scripture, the comparison of peace is it's our shield. It's our defender. The first thing that happens when we get into conflict is our peace gets hit. Have you ever experienced that? You get in the middle of conflict. You can be having a great day. Things are going amazing. The coffee never tasted so good. The scone was never so fluffy. And then conflict comes, and what happens to your peace? Gone. That's your shield. That's your defender. So how do we keep the peace? How do we keep the peace in our lives so we can hear God, so we can walk in this? That no matter what happens, when we, when we look to the Word of God, we find that the path to peace is holiness. Our path to peace is holiness. See, peace is constantly attacked. But when you look at holiness and peace in the Bible, you find that holiness and peace are found together. Holiness and peace, they're always found together. When peace is asked for and inquired about, the answer that's always given is holiness. Jesus continually calls us to holiness. And the writers of all the letters are constantly talking about that call to holiness, how we're to live our lives. Because, see, holiness is a mark of the presence of God in our lives. Remember Moses in the burning bush? Moses saw the bush. He started walking towards it, recognized it was the presence of God. What did God say to Moses? He said, Moses, take off your sandals because this is holy ground. Holiness in God, that peace that comes in. See, peace is the result of our covenant relationship with God. And through this, our lives are reconciled and transformed by him. It's this covenant relationship, this promise Isaiah says it this way. Isaiah says, the fruit of that righteousness, that holy living, will be peace. And Paul says in Romans 5, he says, therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. They're always found together, together. So what is holiness? One of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, says it this way. He says that holy is the way God is. To be holy, God does not conform to a standard. God is the standard. God is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than he is. Holiness is God. This is is the chief attribute of who God is. But not only that, it's an attribute that is to be developed in us as we follow him, and this is where the conflict comes in, right? Because I think sometimes we can go, God, you are amazing, you're awesome, but me, I'm scum, I'm worthless, I made a mistake over here, I did something I'm not really proud of over here, and we start picking out all the little details in our life, but we forget that transformative work in us, of how God comes alive in us. This is what Jesus is calling us back to, because the holiness is the chief attribute of God, the, the quality to be developed. But when we look at that word, that word actually means to separate. See, fundamentally, holiness is a cutting off or separating from everything that is not God, everything that is unclean. 
It's that consecration to what is pure. Now, it doesn't mean that we cut ourselves off from the world totally, does it? Because Jesus, in John 17, he talks about how we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. It's that holiness of God being transformed and worked out in our lives, but we're still called to go and reach the world. We're still called to be in the world. But to do that, that holiness needs to be alive in us. But holiness is the result of a transformation of our lives through Jesus Christ. See, holiness is a reflection of alignment in our lives. We kind of talked about last week, right? When, when we get away from the playbook, when we get off God, just like a car that's out of alignment, we start going down the street like this. How many of you have ever experienced that? Your car is out of alignment. Right? And then we come into the auto body shop and we align ourselves with the word of God. And then all, all of a sudden, driving's easier. When the car is out of alignment, it's a lot more difficult to control, isn't it? This is what holiness does. And the other side of it is that most people that I've talked to, that they have a gripe against Christianity, or I'll, I'll, I'll be talking to somebody and Christ will come up and they'll say, you're not one of those Christians, are you? Oh, I hate Christianity. And I say, well, tell me about that. Why do you hate Christians? What does that mean? And then they describe something that has nothing to do with Christianity. Have you ever been there? And you look at them, and their mind and their shape, their worldview is being shaped by something that's not even Christ-like. It has nothing to do with Jesus. As we walk with Christ, we are transformed. That's where the word Christian came from, because people knew Jesus, and then they saw people following him, and they said, they're just like Christ. They're just like him. It's that work of transformation in our lives. When we are not pursuing it, we confuse people. This is why confession is so important. Not just to God, but also to others. Because when we claim to be a Christian and then we mess up and we say nothing about it and just keep going or maybe even embracing it, it confuses people. But when we mess up, and how many people have messed up? Okay? When you mess up, the response of a Christian needs to be, that's not what God would have me to do. I did that. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. And especially when you're in front of people who don't know God and they're trying to seek God, they see you do something, whatever it is. I've confessed to a lot of non-Christians. Have you? And I've said, I I know that you know I'm a pastor. I know that you know I'm a Christian. And my response there, that's that's not right. That's not what God would have me do. Um, I've confessed to God. I just want you to know I'm, I'm sorry. I'm walking in that, but that's not what God would have me do. Do you know what the response to that normally is? It's like, whoa. I just communicated something about who God is, and I also welcome and invited the walk of that. As we walk with God, Christians are going to make mistakes. Christians are not perfect people. Christians are people who are following God, walking after God, and inviting His Spirit to come in and transform us. But there's a process in that, isn't there? Right? When you give your life to Christ, you are immediately justified. It's called justification. It's a big theological term that simply means when you confess your sins to the Lord and say, God, I'm following you. I received Jesus as my Savior. You are immediately justified in Christ. You are a new creation. All things are made new. The old has passed, and a new day has come in your life. You're justified. You're with him. That's amazing. Do you walk perfect after that? I haven't. 
You don't walk perfect after that. Then we walk into this process called sanctification, another big theological term, which simply means that we're now we're in the process of God transforming us. Because here's the thing. When I came to Jesus, and at the age of five, I went to Jesus during every Sunday school, okay? Because there's a lot of stuff. You wouldn't know what a five-year-old can do back in Newfoundland. A lot of stuff. Every Sunday, I, I went. And as I grew, and as I developed... There was a lot of brokenness that began to happen in my life. So when I came to Jesus, I'll never forget, it was during a high school assembly. I grew up in the church and, I, and, I, and loved the Lord, but I was just, I was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then this group came through. It was, uh, it was this group that came through and there were these young guys singing. And they were sharing Christ. And they began to talk about the change. And God spoke to me and said, Dwayne, are you ready to start following me for real? I said, for real, for real? I said, for real. Amen. Complete dedication. I went forward. And I surrendered my life to Christ. But then God began this work in my life. Immediately justified, immediately right, standing before God. But God's going, all right. Now let's start working this out. Let's start the transformation being filled with the Spirit, being empowered. This is the process. This is the way of life, that pursuit of holiness, of his character being formed in us. Because, see, this process is a way of life. And as we kind of overlay this to the game plan and to the athletic analogy, every athlete knows that when you make the team, the work is not done, is it? When you make a team, it's like, all right, get ready to work. Every coach, ever, on the first day of practice, every coach walked out and said, all right, boys, get ready for the pain. You know? <laughs> get ready to work. Get ready to come out. But we were motivated because we wanted to win. We wanted a strong team. We wanted to learn the game we were in. We wanted to get there and win. That was our whole focus. And every athlete, they know this. Making a team is not the end. That's just the beginning. A strong athlete who's healthy and strong and productive, they're always preparing for the game. You see an athlete, they've got a workout plan. They're the ones in the gym they're going for. They've got a model. They're not just posing. They're, they're not there to meet anybody. They're there to get results and to work and to get healthy. This is why James says for us that faith without works is dead. As followers of Christ, we are always working it out. We're always trying it out. And some days you lift it, you meet your goal, and some days you don't, but you keep working, you keep going. Every athlete that I know watches what they eat. And sometimes I'm looking at them going, man, you're in incredible shape. You don't need to watch what you eat. He's like, no, I'm in incredible shape because I do watch what I eat. They realize it's important what you allow to come into your life. Everything that you allow to come in, it affects you. That's why the psalmist wrote, he wrote, guard your hearts above all things. Job in 31, he said this. He said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Have you made a covenant with your eyes? That I will not look at anything that defiles the Lord. And that's one of the toughest things in the day that we are in. When pornography is raging. Billboards are being thrown at you. If you go anywhere, you're going to be tempted. But as we pursue God, our Life needs to be, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Things may flash up. I may see a billboard that I can't control. But as far as it's up to me, God, I've made a covenant with my eyes. And even in that, 
When we fail, we confess. When we have struggles, we get with believers. We have an amazing ministry called Pure Desire that walks in that struggles with pornography. Guys that are praying and they're walking through to get freedom in this area. It's one of the number one plagues of our society today. As believers, we make a covenant with our eyes. God, guard my heart. Guard my eyes. We do the same thing with our mind. Every good athlete heads into mental preparation. And especially in the last 20 years, they've recognized how important sports psychology is. That mental toughness. Being prepared. For us, as we follow the Lord, that we're studying the Word, we're meditating on His Word, we're speaking with God, we're hearing from the Lord. And every athlete takes time to rest. And I would probably guess at a room this size that most of you are terrible at resting. Point to somebody who's terrible at, at resting and taking a break, okay? Most of you are going, yeah, it's me. We're terrible at it because we're taught, be productive, get something done, go out and do it. Even Jesus took time to rest, okay? So unless you're walking on water today, Jesus took time to pull back and rest, and he was criticized for it. Now, he didn't stop there. Jesus didn't spend all of his time in the desert. He didn't spend all of his time withdrawing. But Jesus took time to rest. We need to recognize that. We need to recognize that in our lives. And one of the biggest things that leans into it, because all this plays into it, all of this comes down to team unity. See, team unity must be protected. Think about the teams that have been destroyed by a lack of team unity. When you get a team and something goes wrong and they start saying, well, that was your fault or that was that ref's fault or what the coach call that play for or what's happening over here, the end is near, isn't it? A complaining team, a whining team. That team unity is so important. That's why Jesus said, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity Listen to this, that the world will know that you have sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. See, team unity is so important because it reveals to others who we're following. Jesus is in us. Unity is so important. But to do this, we need to guard our lives. See, we know that races are lost by fractions of a second. Have you ever watched the Olympics? And I'm amazed. It's like top 10 people, they're all within a second of each other, okay? I'm doing good at a 10-minute mile, <laughs> but they're down just to the seconds of a fraction. And we don't have to think hard to think about the football games that have been lost by just one missed field goal. I know. Uh, it's, the struggle is real, okay? We need to guard our lives because what we allow to come into our lives has the opportunity to disciple us. What we allow into our lives, and we see this throughout Scripture, especially in, in First and Second Corinthians, whatever we allow in our lives has the opportunity to disciple us in some way. That's why we need to guard it. One of the disciplers in my life that I've just had to say no to, that I cannot allow it to come into my life, and this may seem silly to you, is uh, potato chips. Potato chips cannot be in my life. Now, this may seem stupid and silly, okay? 
But for me, if a bag of chips comes in, even if my kids bring it in, I can smell it, I can find it, and there may be many of you out there that you can stop at one potato chip. You can get one potato chip and you're good. Not me. If I eat one potato chip, by the end of the night, the bag is gone, and I'm licking my finger, and I'm going in that corner to get that little piece of salt. Now, don't judge me. You've been there. Now, are are potato chips bad? (laughs) All right. Let me say this. Yeah, this this is going to be a long sermon, isn't it? Um, And I found this, too. I don't consider myself old, but I'm older than I was, okay? And here's what I found, that I may have been able to eat a bag of potato chips when I was a teenager and no big deal, right? No, I'm I'm talking about a bag, you know, not not this little, you know. Yeah, Costco size. (laughs) But at my age now, I started eating that. Man, the weight gain, it just happens overnight. Acid reflux. I'm being vulnerable. The acid reflux comes in. You start gaining weight. You start feeling bad. I start feeling sluggish. Do you know what happens to me when I start feeling that way? I start feeling bad about myself. I open my life to depression. Now, I'm not saying potato chips is the ultimate evil in the world. I'm just saying for me. This is personal today, okay? I'm just saying. As I dive in, I've noticed in this one area, as I've cut that out, and when I'm disciplined to stay away from that, life goes so much better. And that's just potato chips. Think about all the other things in your life. Because so many things, there are things in your life that we can't just have one. It sets a hook in us, and it destroys us, and it starts adding things onto our life, and it starts making us feel sick, but it tastes so good, so we keep eating it. We keep bringing the stuff in. We keep watching it. We're like, no one's going to know. Well, our clothes may be bursting at, at the seam. And then we start feeling bad about ourselves. We start feeling bad about our relationship with God, our relationship with others, and it starts with one. That's why we see in all this, we're like, cut it away. In Corinthians it says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Do you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with our bodies. See, what I allow to come in is going to affect me. What I allow to come in as an opportunity to disciple me and to master me, and the physical and the spiritual are connected. We worship the Lord with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everything is connected, and whatever we open ourselves up to affects us. That's why Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes because I don't want anything to get between me and God, and and it's going to affect how I treat my family, how I love my neighbor. I'm going to treat people with respect, and when I mess up, I'm going to confess to a non-Christian and say, I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. That's not how God would have me behave. Do you know what would happen if Christians began walking in a way when they were convicted they did something wrong and they turned to their unsaved co-worker, unsaved family member and said, I'm wrong, I want to confess to you. That's not how God would have me act. But I'm following Jesus. Because we're going to fall down, but it's important how we get back up. That's the transformative work of God in us. When we have a culture where it's okay to confess to one another, knowing that that brother, that sister, that friend, they're going to talk to us and say, you know what, I want to help you walk with Jesus in this. We're going to walk out of this. 
This is the way of Christ, that transformative work. That's why we lack so much peace in our life. But as we surrender our lives to God, and as our goal is not how little can I do and still get to heaven, see, it's not about that. It's about surrendering to Christ. This is not about fire insurance. I just don't want to go to hell. So how close can I get to God, you know, over here to do these things I really want to do, but still be right with God? Does any relationship that you operate that way work? If you marry somebody and go, I want to see how little I can love you and still stay in this marriage. All right? If anybody said to that about one of my kids, we'd be postponing something, wouldn't we? I'd be calling Stephanie saying, Stephanie, you need to help me walk this through here. That's not how we work, even with each other in friendships. How little can I be your friend and still be a best friend? How little can I give at work and still have a good job? How little can I give to this but still look good on Facebook? And I think so many times we want to get the good selfie and then whatever happens after that, who cares? As long as it looks good to everybody else. Put it on Instagram. I put up a good tweet today. Read my Bible. It's that life transformative work. And this is the source of our peace, that transformative work of God in our lives, in his holiness. Because see, as we live our lives surrendered to God, being transformed by him and pursuing and receiving the holiness that he allows through his Holy Spirit in our life, our lives will be marked with his peace. And when we walk through our culture filled with the peace of God, we stand out. Something's different. This is the question that gets asked of those who walk with his peace. Because here's a powerful thing. One of the most powerful things about peace is that peace enables us to take the field. When it comes to walking out with God, peace is what enables us to take the field. See, peace is not the end of the mission. Peace is the beginning of the mission in our lives. This is what peace does. See, Jesus gave his disciples peace so they could go. Do you remember? After the crucifixion of Jesus, they laid him in the tomb, and he rose again. Hallelujah. Where were the disciples found? Hiding. They were scared. Jesus just rose from the dead. And they're scared for their lives. They're scared of the Jewish leaders. They're scared of the Romans. They're afraid that someone's going to take their life. And they're, they're hiding. So what does Jesus do? He walks in. He's like, don't be scared. And he says, peace I give to you. Peace I give to you. John 20, peace be with you. And then he says this, immediately after saying, peace be with you, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now take the field, guys. Go. You've got peace. I'm alive. I've conquered death and hell. Take the field. I'm covering you with peace. You can walk. No weapon formed against you is going to prosper. Peace is not the end of the mission. Peace is the beginning See, peace is the result of the presence of God in our life. Peace is the fruit of a transformed life. And not only that, when we look back at that Greek word or N-A for peace that comes in, we find that in that definition, the latter part of that definition, it means that that peace comes with a responsibility. That when we experience the peace of God in our life, God is, is holding us responsible. It says, this gift of peace or reconciliation with God made available through Christ 
places an ethical demand on the Christian. It calls for the exercises of peace. Peace as a fruit of the Spirit is to be the goal of the Christian's dealings with others, and it marks our identity as a child of God. Peace. Are you hungry for peace today? Are you hungry for the peace of God that passes all understanding? To walk with Jesus that even in the middle of a storm, Jesus was relaxed. He was at peace. And when they questioned him, he was like, why are you worried? I'm with you. Well, the waves are roaring. We feel like we're going to die and you're sleeping. He's like, you're not going to, I'm here. It's that peace of God in our lives. See, God has given us this task, it says in 2 Corinthians, of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation so that we are now Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. Isn't that exciting? But we need his peace. And the pathway to peace is his holiness, the presence of God being surrendered in us. How many of you today say, boy, I hear it, I want it, I see it, but I'm struggling with peace. Just lift your hands and just say, I want the peace of God. Just hold them up there. I'm I'm holding both my hands up. We need the peace of God, don't we? God is calling us to a deep relationship with him. This is not a quick fix, put a band-aid on it. Say the right prayer, and everything's going to go the way you want it. This is a peace in the midst of a storm, God walking with us as we allow our lives to be transformed. Just like an athlete saying, Lord, show me where the work is. (laughs) Show me what I need to put in my body. Show me where I need to make a covenant with my eyes. There have been times over my life when God has pulled things out of my life that didn't make sense. There's been times the Lord has pulled people out of my life that didn't make sense. But as I look back, I recognize what the Lord was doing. There were things that were good things that were keeping me from the work that God was doing. God is there to transform us, to be alive in us, filled with his Holy Spirit, renewed. That's the life of peace. There's times I've canceled Netflix. Netflix has shows about Jesus on there. That's okay, right? Not if it distracts you. There's times I haven't gone to certain places that seem to be good, but it was a distraction. Because God is walking with you. And as followers of Christ, we need to say, Lord, speak, your servant is listening. Where are you calling me? What are you addressing in me for my good? See, when it says that all things work to the good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, that word good is transformation. And that's a great thing. That's a great thing. So as we head into this time of appropriate response, as you look at your listening guide, just a couple questions today. Ask yourself, where's my level of peace today? Am I feeling pretty full? Or am I feeling pretty empty? Is the gauge blinking saying, you need to fuel up soon? Or your car is going to stop? Where are you today? 
Ask yourself, what resonates or stands out to me as I think about holiness? Am I committed to God's process and that work of sanctification? Knowing that he loves us just like a good parent looks at their child and they go, you got to brush your teeth every day. It's time for a bath. God <laughs> can smell you. <laughs> Let mom brush your hair today. We're going to brush your hair today. That's what God wants to do. He just wants to wash you. He just wants to brush your hair. He brushed mine all out, but he wants to brush your hair. And he wants to come in and just care. That's the transformative work for the mission. Amen. Can we all stand together as we just prepare to respond? Stand if you can. And if the Lord's doing a work in you, you, you can just remain seated and you can kneel. But I believe the Lord wants to do that work to you today, that transforming of that care, that brushing of the hair, that saying, you're my child. It's time for a bath. Let's, let's get some clean clothes on. I bought some new clothes for you. How ex- it's always exciting. Allow him to take off the old, to put on the new today. Receive him. As the worship team plays this morning, I want to invite you, as this resonates, we have prayer teams that would love to pray with you. People to process with and talk this through. We have communion that represents that cleansing work of God, that healing. How he broke his body, he died for you so that now you can be transformed and renewed. Or maybe you just want to turn to the person next to you and say, yeah, I need that today. Let's take these moments before we rush out of here just to say, Lord, I need, I need to do this. I need to walk. I need to receive. I need to surrender. I need you to wash me today. Let's step out and respond to the Lord.